Hello, I'm Evans Marajas, the Harry T. Wilkes Artistic Director for Cincinnati Opera. And we're about to have a conversation with author Naomi Andre, the author of Black Opera, and bass baritone Morris Robinson, star of Cincinnati Opera's 2019 summer production of Gershwin's Porgy and Bess. We're going to talk about how African Americans came into the world of opera, their struggle for success, the triumphs, and also how today we are living in a golden age of opera for African-American singers. Please welcome my guests, Metropolitan Opera bass Morris Robinson. And author Naomi Andre. Hello. (laughs) Okay, there's going to be a quiz. I want you to remember the following dates. January 7th, 1955. January 27th, 1961. October 24th, 1961. November 16th, 2002. All will become clear in the next hour. First, I want to first of all welcome you to this opera wrap, part of a series of presentations we do throughout the season and accelerate as we get closer to our opera season to talk about things opera in general and our season in particular. We have a beautiful confluence of events tonight and in this season because this season we present for the second time of only in our history the Gershwins Porgy and Bess and Morris Robinson who's been with the company on many occasions will be singing Porgy for us for the first time in Cincinnati. And Naomi Andre, who is the author of a fantastic new book, I recommend all of you purchase it. It's available at the back of the room, as a matter of fact, called Black Opera, History, Power, and Engagement. Um, I became aware of Naomi's work in a wonderful uh, video uh, that was on YouTube, that is on YouTube, of a seminar she did. And then I got a chance to watch her firsthand not so long ago, about a year ago at the University of Kentucky, uh, where you had a, you were, the University of Kentucky, there was a place where you were having a presentation that I was present. And I'm, yeah, it was. Was it? I don't think so. I don't where? know. I have not been to Kentucky that much. Oh, I remember, but, but that's for another conversation. Okay. Um, <laughs> hmm. However, what is so beautiful about Naomi's book is that it tells the story of the African-American journey to the stage of major opera houses in our country, but also gives us a wonderful glimpse into an equally compelling story that I bet none of us know anything about, which is the rise of African singers for classical music and opera in South Africa. Uh, something that I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, about how this came to be a passion of yours. And so this next hour will be us weaving in and out of several stories. Um, Morris's own story, of course, which some of you know, because Morris has been with us a lot and he's been with us on opera reps before and told the story of his life in opera. But I'd like to begin, Naomi, with um, something that I draw from the book, because you came of age as an opera goer in a rather golden period in our country's operatic history in the 1980s in New York City. Do you remember your first visit to the Met and what you saw or what some of your early impressions were? 
Oh, I'm so glad you asked that because I absolutely do, and it's a fun story. So I am originally from New York, but outside of the city, and I was um, fortunate to go to a Quaker boarding school in southeast Pennsylvania, West Town, so shout out to them. And I and another person, um, Eric Michko, Yep, and I sort of tell his name up front because he was a year behind me and we would go, he was one of these like in the 80s, a computer sort of guy and sort of this nerdy guy and I was sort of this artsy free spirit or I thought so. And so we would go to all the, um, the school would take us to events in Philadelphia. So the Philadelphia Orchestra, the ballet, the, um, and we, he was with me with my first opera in this um, a trip to Wilmington, Delaware, to see Magic Flute. So when I uh, graduated, as I you know showed a year ahead, and I was going to undergrad in the city um, at Barnard in New York City, he said, "Oh, we should go to the Met," and I'm like, "Oh, okay, Eric, look me up." <laughs> Then he, he had an aunt who lived in Forest Hills, and so we went, and it was in the fall of 1985, and the first opera we went to was De Rosencavalier with um, Tatiana Troianas as the um, Octavian, I think it was Gwyneth Jones as uh, the Marshallin, and Kathleen Battles as Sophie. So it was an incredible first performance. Now we were young students, I was a first year in college, he was in, still in high school, and so he said, oh, the tickets aren't expensive because we can stand. So we stood. <laughs> And so For the first four hours yes. of stress. <laughs> yes. And yet it was magical. It was the old production that had this incredible chandelier. And then he sort of curated the next sort of operas we went to see. So we saw Covanchina. We saw um, Dialogues of the Carmelites. So it wasn't until like the fourth opera when we saw Puccini's Manon Lascaux and that I saw sort of something in the original canon, you know, the traditional canon. But there was a magic. There were no super titles or seat titles at that point. And I was just enthralled and it was wonderful. And so we were opera buddies for a long time. He at that point did not know that he needed to work in music. So he was in graduate school. He went to Columbia. I think mainly to be in the city, but also for their um, political science, political theory program. And, um, and then he has found his way into artistic management and he's now the general director at North Carolina, uh, one of their operas. So that's why you guys knew him. But it was Eric Mitchko, my high school buddy, who turned me on to opera at the Met. And did you see any African-American faces on stage in those first visits? Well, I was really lucky because there was Sophie uh, with Kathleen Battle. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow. And the fact that she is African-American wasn't a point of the plot. She just, and she had, oh my gosh, I wanted to be her. <laughs> <laughs> I think any, I was singing just for myself. I mean, I had voice lessons and all. And just a beautiful, sweet lyric a, oh, just a voice with such a beautiful bloom on it. And so that, I definitely noticed race, and I was very excited, although it wasn't anything to specifically talk about. I was also fortunate in that Jesse Norman was singing at the Met at that point, and I saw a Zieglinda and a Kundry. 
and but there weren't a lot. There was Leona Mitchell, and I saw a, a Mimi. So at that point, sort of scattered in there, Martina Arroyo was um, finishing up her career, but she was singing Aida. Not so many men, unfortunately, but there there were a sprinkling. Kitty Takanawa at that point was singing, but I did I didn't really know her background, and I think she's definitely from New Zealand. I think she's Maori. She is Maori. And so that type of difference or um, ethnic background wasn't so emphasized at that point. Uh, so opera was this sort of magical space where, as I've said before, it was almost like the, ma the mass in Latin, where you sort of knew what was happening, but you didn't have a word-by-word -word translation. And it was, um, it, it was magical. I didn't see a whole lot of me in the audience or around too much, um, but there were just a couple of black women who were singing, and that was really powerful. Morris, not to make this all about the Met this evening, but you have a long association with the company. Do you remember your first recollection of the, of the Opera House? Of the Opera House? Of seeing a, of seeing a performance? Seeing a performance, yeah. Um, my first opera seeing there, I want to say it was Nabucco, I think. And An opera in which you would eventually sing. In fact, I did. It was Sam Raimi was singing Zacharia. Um, <clears throat> I want to say that uh, Rhea Chetta was singing the High Priest of Ball, and we had Andrea Gruber was singing Abigail, and yeah, it was a great. And James Levine was conducting, and it was a, it was a wonderful experience. I just I was mostly amazed at the size and colors of the voices I heard there, and the massiveness of this Verdi orchestra being played by none other than the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. So it's, it's kind of overwhelming and intimidating because you start thinking, I'm never going to make it on this stage. <laughs> and I think two years later, I was actually singing in that production. But, you know, it was, that was a miracle. But I think that, it, you know, I was inspired by that, you know, being there. And, you know, I, see, I always say when you go to the Met, you find out two things. Sometimes it makes you want to go to the practice room. And sometimes it makes you go, you know what, I can do that. So I had to kind of a mixture of those two things. Uh, as far as the race aspect of it goes, um, <clears throat> my first year there, I didn't see any African-Americans on stage, except for Alfred Walker, I think, mm -hmm. who was a former young artist like myself. The following year, I did see um, <clears throat> Michelle Kreider sing Aida. And I think that I, oh my God, I can't think of it now. Um, the baritone with members only jacket all the time. Uh, Oh my God, he sings Amanazro. And Mark Rucker. Mark Rucker. Mark Rucker was there covering. And I was in his cover cast. And that was about it. Um, they were doing Porgy and Bess at City Opera, though. And they were all eating in the Met cafeteria. So I saw, <laughs> <laughs> I saw the house. Like, Where are all these black people come from? Oh, you're doing Porgy, you got it. So, yeah. So that was the, that's how it went. You know? We're going to get to that, of yeah, course, yeah, eventually. Yeah. Um, you set foot on that stage as a performer. Uh, uh, so this is the answer to one of the quiz questions. You set foot on that stage on November the 16th, 2002, for the first time as a performer, singing the role of the second prisoner in the opera Fidelio of Beethoven. It's, uh, as the English would say, a burp and a spit. It's not very long, <laughs> but it was a significant debut. Do you remember some of the emotions you had on that night? Yeah, I was freaked out, man. <laughs> it was... Uh, my mom was there, and it was the only time she ever got to see me sing at the Met, because she passed like the next year, um, a year and a half later. My grandmother was there, my dad's mom was there, my dad was there, my wife Denise was there, and uh, you know, it was, I was thinking all this pump and circumstance for like three words, you know, but uh, <clears throat> it, was, it was a lot. It's just, uh, having just started studying opera about 
two years before that and did an audition for James Levine. It was just all, it was all happening so fast. But I wanted to enjoy that moment because I didn't know if I'd ever get it again. So I just went out and sang the best I could. And I think my first word were, was it Sprechleise? Yeah. So speak, I'm supposed to speak Sprech. softly, right? But I was Not singing, easy for you. I was singing. I went 90 decibels. I was going hard. <laughs> and uh, uh, Anthony Tomasini actually reviewed me for those two words. <laughs> wow. And, uh, and it, it went from there. It took off. So, yeah. But it was, it was a very emotional moment. It was a lot going on, a lot of pressure. You know, I must have studied those lines all summer just to get those three or four words right. So, yeah. yeah. Naomi, would you spin the clock back for us and spend a couple of minutes giving us, I realize it's going to have to be a bit of a Cliff Notes history, but where do African-American singers of classical music, uh, particularly operatic music, get their first opportunities in the United States? How far back does it go, and what are, what are one or two significant moments before sure. 1955? Sure. Well, 1955 with Marian Anderson um, singing at the Metropolitan Opera was an incredible moment. But leading up to that is a history that we're still writing. We know a bit about it. We know perhaps the earliest thing we know for sure is Elizabeth Taylor Greenfield, and she was called the Black Swan. These sort of nicknames for opera singers have been going all the way back to the 17th and 18th centuries. And she sounded, um, from what we can tell, she because we don't have any uh, recordings of her voice, but she was born um, in slavery. Her uh, The master had died, Greenfield, and the wife had moved to Philadelphia and gave her lessons, or procured lessons for her. And so Elizabeth Taylor Greenfield became an incredible recitalist. She, by 1850, 51, she went to um, sing for Queen Victoria. She was singing, and um, she became very active in the abolitionist movement and singing where Frederick Douglass, and this is all history that's just coming out with people, right, sort of fleshing it out. We've known about Elizabeth Taylor Greenfield, and so she sang, um, she's sort of the earliest opera singer we know. She had no opera career in companies or anything like that here in the United States, or even really abroad, because it was such a segregated world. This is a context where minstrelsy is the big way where a lot of performance around blackness was happening. Minstrelsy, for those of you who don't know, started in the 1820s. Thomas, Thomas Dartmouth Rice is the one who was thought to have sort of one of the early founders. A white man who saw a crippled black man on the side of the road decided, wow, I could use this as a comedy act and take his clothes, you know, blacken up my face with burnt cork. And it became this really popular thing. So this was something that was performed all over the United States with troops primarily from um, the South, but not only. I've also found that minstrelsy, it traveled to England, it traveled to South Africa in the 1860s. It was super popular. And this is where a lot of negative stereotypes, the Jezebel, the Buck, um, the Mammy, Piccaninnies for Children, came out of these, this vaudeville sort of skit, singing and dancing and negative um, skit. So this is the context in which you see sort of blackness performed on the stage. Sadly, and it seems mainly after the Civil War, you get a lot of African Americans who participate in minstrelsy, not because they're saying, woo, this is fun, but oh, 
I can be an artist. James Bland was an incredible composer. Oh, them golden slippers. He wrote that. That was. I don't think that was specifically a minstrel song, but he. This was a way to make money. This was a way to have a career. So that was continuing on, and then I sort of hate to bring this up because I've always taught about minstrelsy as something from the 1820s. It was in the United States. It went worldwide, but sort of we got a sense that it uh, sort of folded in the um, eight, 1950s, 1960s. But as we've seen in recent, um, well, just in February of this year, there have been these awful new cases that have come to light of people not knowing this history. So I, I where where Prada and Gucci have had, um, you can just easily Google these things, a sweater that looks like blackface, little um, moniker key rings that take these exaggerated black lips. We find out that the um, governor, Northrop of Virginia, said, oh yeah, you know, blackface, and I have these pictures in my medical school yearbook. These are things that sadly are not in the past, and they come from, interestingly enough, these, a lot of it comes from this musical tradition of minstrelsy. But to just really quickly put some positive things, there's Elizabeth Taylor Greenfield, Ciceretta Jones is the next big name that she's performing a lot in the 1890s, she was called the Black Patty, wasn't right. she? After Adelina Patty, Patty the famous singer. who's another singer. big um, singer, absolutely. And so we had some, again, she formed a group called the Black Patty Troubadours, and we're not too sure all of what they sang, because as troubadours and minstrels, it's like, were they doing minstrelsy, or were they doing opera? But it was just assumed because they were black performers, they couldn't do opera. So looking at actual performances and cast lists and, and repertory and numbers, this is stuff that's coming to light. So this history of black people and not doing minstrelsy but reacting against that is really exciting as it's coming out. Marian Anderson's the big name who first became a big name in 1939 when she sang on the steps in front of the Lincoln Memorial. I'm sorry if I'm running into not things that all. you might mention. No, no. But just really um, quickly, she was um, supposed to or had asked, her manager had asked that she could sing in Constitution Hall. The Daughters of the American Revolution had the custodianship of this. Some of you might know this story. And they denied her. And then Eleanor Roosevelt said, you know, I'm very disappointed. I resigned my membership from the Daughters of the American Revolution. You had a chance to do something very important and you didn't. And then Marian Anderson starts singing at the White House as well as... Um, on Easter Sunday in 1939. So she's, in, she's almost a Rosa Parks of um, opera and sort of like became this uh, important figure. She wasn't alone. There are other people and these histories are coming out. Maybe people that you know or that sang here in Cincinnati since you guys have such an incredible tradition with Matawilda uh, Dobbs, with Lillian Avante. These are names where we're still needing biographies Mary Caldwell Dawson was somebody who tried to get a black opera company going. Theodore Drury actually had a company. Uh, he was a singer. He was um, supposedly um, just very light, so people weren't sure if he was um, Italian or Latino, but it turns out that he was black. And in um, the beginning of the, like, 1902-1903, he was putting operas on. Kristen Turner is somebody who's doing work on this. So it's wonderful as I've been finding all these other scholars who are talking about this is a tradition that 
that's been out there, but we haven't excavated it yet. So let's do this, because this is part of the history of opera. Black people were singing opera in churches, in community centers, and they were doing it really well. <laughs> I'd love to spend just a couple of moments on that momentous occasion and play a little bit of music, because in 1950, Rudolf Bing, an Austrian uh, with an English education, is tapped to become the chief of the Metropolitan Opera. He comes to the Metropolitan Opera at a time of change. He saw what the Met was. Remember, they were still in the old house on Broadway. And he saw that it was a tired tradition of semaphore acting and not many young singers and almost still very few Americans. And without much fanfare, he simply set about the business of changing the company, hiring young Americans, hiring stage directors for the first time, theatrical stage directors to come and work at the Met. And by the 1954-1955 season, had enough courage to engage Marian Anderson for her one and only role at the Metropolitan Opera. And I would love for you, Naomi, to uh, set the stage a little bit why the role of Ulrika, the sorceress in Balo and Mascara, was both uh, maybe a little bit stereotypical, but also very potent as the, as the role that Marian Anderson sang at the Met, to break the color barrier at the Met. People have known that Marian Anderson sang at the Met in 1955, but what I had a lot of fun doing was really thinking about what did it mean for her to sing that role on stage. So for those of you who, um, just sort of reminding you, Umbalo and Mascara, The Masked Ball, is Verdi's opera from 1859. It's an opera that has a lot of different um, parts, usually at this point in the 1850s and second half of the 19th century. You get operas that have sort of your leading soprano and your leading tenor. And the wonderful thing, and I'm a huge Verdi fan, and I did a lot of scholarship on it, is that he has all these baritone and mezzo-soprano roles and different types of roles. So with this story, he that was from a French source and actually went through one of the worst cases of censorship in Verdi's time because it had an element of regicide on the stage. And you couldn't do this in Italy where we're in the Risorgimento. Italy is trying to become a united um, country and that doesn't happen. The first Italian parliament isn't until 66. So this is in the 50s where Censors were watching everything. Balo was originally for Naples, and that was an incredible in the south, a very conservative place. And then it eventually went to um, Rome. And so there's for those of you who know, and sorry, I will get right back on track. But there's the the Swedish version and the Boston version, and because the Swedish version you couldn't have Gustavo, a king, killed on stage. So you had the governor of Boston. <laughs> Not Massachusetts, but Boston. And um, he's uh, Ricardo. Part of this story is that you have a sorceress, a woman who connects with the other world, who lives on the outskirts of town, and people go there to have their fortune told. Well, Amelia uh, wants to go there because she's in love with the, she's married to the, um, 
Renato, who is the king's advisor, and she's in love with the king or the, the governor of Boston. And so she has to work on this and figure this out. So she's going to see Ulrika. So in the first, first scene of act two, um, she goes out into, we, we get to meet Ulrika, and she's set up wonderfully. We get to see sort of her and this wonderful deep bass notes in, in music, and she's stirring a pot usually. In fact, there's all this wonderful um, iconography of Marian Anderson sort of with her hair out and, you know, this big cauldron. And so Ricardo actually pretends to be a soldier, and he pops in there, and, you know, she can tell that he's not a sailor or a soldier because his hand is much, you know, not a working calloused hand. They clear the room, and Amelia comes in to, um, to have, because, you know, she She's there and she needs to find out what she needs to do so she's no longer in love, break the spell with the wrong man. And so Ulrika, as she's calling up the king of the abyss, and she sings, and this is the Marian Anderson role. So it's a particularly good role, I think, or it's interesting because she dominates the scene she's in, but it's off a bit from the main action. She's a woman who connects with this other world, the supernatural world, and so she's kind of exhausted in a way, so it's okay to see the first black person on the opera stage doing this, and yet she's not a small role, she's sort of a big small role, she, but she dominates that scene she's in. So this is um, her big metropolitan opera role, and it's, it's a great one. Morris, do you remember the first time you heard her voice? Obviously only on record since she had long since retired and maybe even passed away by the time you were getting into opera. Do I remember the first time I heard it? Yeah, yeah. Marian Anderson's voice? Yeah, of course. I'm sorry, yeah. You said not talking to any of these. Yeah, but I remember it. And I remember thinking, <clears throat> if, I'm, if I got it correctly, it was more of a contralto type yeah, of sound very than much it was so. a mezzo sound. And <laughs> I always have these weird thoughts when I think about the African-American voice and how often you don't see it in opera. And, you know, I heard her sing and I thought, well, that's the real deal, first of all. And it's a very unique sound. Secondly, I thought, you know, if given the opportunity, you can go to First Baptist Church in Macon, Georgia, and find two more of those, you know, on Sunday morning. You know what I mean? And, uh, I mean, you can find another Morris Robinson if you just comb through the, the, the annals of, uh, of, the, of the black church down south, you know, or anywhere this matter. But, yeah, I remember hearing that and going, God bless her, she deserved it, you know, and, and that's a, such a unique, rich sound. And, you know, one that only she could possibly make, you know, so. So, recently, the Metropolitan Opera archives have uh, divulged, as it were, a huge treasure trove of broadcasts that had been heretofore unavailable. Shortly after she sang the performances that she sang at the Met, she did go to the RCA Victor Studios with an orchestra and members of the cast in which she sang and recorded some excerpts from the opera. There's a single long playing record. But lo and behold, that actual evening of January 7th, 1955 exists. This is Marian Anderson's debut on the Met stage. Thank you. 
not often you get to hear history. It's really quite remarkable. She had a somewhat tremulous voice, of course, with a very distinctive, fast vibrato. Um, and she sang almost no opera in her career, if I remember right. There weren't many opportunities. There were a few roles she sang. Um, o Don Fatale, I think, I believe, aria, and O Mio Ferrando, I think, from an opera, uh, Don Sebastian, Donatelli, but not too many because there weren't the opportunities to do it. So the door opens slightly at the Metropolitan Opera in 1955, and things begin to improve a little bit. But the real history is made on January 27th, 1961, with the debut of Leontine Price. Now, Leontine Price rose to international uh, prominence as early as the early 1950s, fresh out of Juilliard. She was tapped to be on what turned out to be a multi-year tour, of which she participated at least in the first year, of Porgy and Bess. And the man who would be briefly become her husband, William Warfield, was Porgy. Um, we've played excerpts from that before in 2012 when we did uh, Porgy and Bess for the first time. There was, fortunately for us, the complete performance in Berlin was recorded by the German radio, uh, and it exists, and we, we've played excerpts from that before. But I would like for you, Naomi, to, as it were, set the stage for Leontine Price's debut at the Metropolitan Opera for us. Well, Leontine Price is one of those people, the, the barrier had been broken and there were black people moving into the Metropolitan Opera slowly, but Marian Anderson was born in the 1890s, and so when she's singing in 1955, she's had a big part of her career. Leontine Price was born in the 30s, and so by the time we get to the 60s, the early 60s, she's really in the prime, like the beginning, the early bloom of her voice. And there was something in her voice where she could sing across so many different types of things. One of the issues that comes up, and perhaps we'll talk about it is Porgy and Bess is the type of opera where if a lot of, particularly in the past, I want to think it's changing now, but if you're African-American and singing Porgy and Bess, you don't easily get to cross to other repertory roles, to the Mozart roles, to the Wagner roles, to Faust, to, you know, you name it, the more mainstream repertory. Leontine Price, as you notice, she sings early in her career this major Porgy and Bess tour, outside of the United States as part of the um, State Department's tours for showing how wonderful we are um, with the arts and how the United States is actually very um, supportive of African-American artists, which wasn't always felt in country. It's in the middle of the Korean War, let's remember, and the Iron Curtain has come down firmly across Eastern Europe, so this was a political propaganda move as yes. well. It is. And Leontine Price is singing, and there's some wonderful um, interviews with her as she talks about later in uh, the late 90s when James Standifer did a uh, biography about Porgy and Bess and interviews Leontine Price, as well as Anne Brown and Todd Duncan, the first Porgy and Bess, they were still living. And Leontine Price talks about singing Bess was something that she felt she could just bring a lot of her experience into. But she was also singing Donna Anna. She was also singing Alice in Ford in Fall 
Falstaff. And she was also singing, moving into what was becoming her, would become her signature roles with the Verdi and the Puccini heroines. So she's such an interesting voice in that she can sing such a wide range of things. And she also was chosen when the Met moved from the 39th Street House on Broadway up to Lincoln Center in 66. You know, here, the, nobody, 11 years earlier, you have the first African-American person on stage. Then they open the house, less than a dozen years later, it's Leontine Price who's singing <laughs> Cleopatra and Anthony and Cleopatra. I mean, there was something about her that just became, people fell in love with that sound. So one of the interesting things, and I think, Morris, I'd love for you to talk about this a little bit later, is that... Obviously, one of the stigmas is, can a black singer have a romantic entanglement with a white singer on the operatic stage, no less the Metropolitan Opera? So Leontine Price makes her debut on the night of 27 January 1961, opposite Franco Corelli, the famous Italian tenor, singing her Manrico, the tenor, in Trovatore. So a debut night for two cosmic singers. But in that first season at the Met, she goes on to sing her warrior role, as she called it, of Aida. She also sings Madame Butterfly with a white tenor, Donna Anna with a white tenor, and Liu in Turandot with a white tenor. In her first season at the Met, within the space of, this is all, by the way, in two months. In the month of March alone, she sings Butterfly, Donna Anna, and Toronto. I mean, that's incredible by today's standards. Anybody's standards. Yeah. Yeah. So, Morris, uh, before we hear this excerpt, again, wonderfully recorded historically, do you remember the first time you heard Lantine Price and your impression of the voice? Use the mic, please. (laughs) Your voice is big, but we're also trying to record this. Um... So I was going to learn the Verdi Requiem first. And I'm still new to this whole opera thing. This is before I even started to see an opera. And I picked up this video. And there was some young tenor, apparently, that was a substitute named Pavarotti. And then there was this really, really great bass, Nikolai Kierov. And I forgot, the mezzo was Cosotto? Cosotto, yes. Cosotto, yes. And then there was this black girl with, <laughs> without a score. She was the only one who didn't have a score, by the way. The only one who didn't have a score, who stood like this the whole while. And I'm getting chills now. And I don't get chills when I hear voices, because I got a pretty decent voice myself, so it's hard to impress me. But Modest, too. The amount amount of sound and the color and the beauty and the explosion and the the decrescendos, the crescendos. I listened to her sing uh, the... The, the very last part, more than I listened to uh, Yarov seeing the more stupid beat, because it was just that impressive. I was just like, that is, that's what God wanted it to sound like, you know? That's what Verdi, if Verdi could have picked his own soloist, he would have picked her, I'm sure, to be the soprano, so. It was- so, it's January 27, 1961. Leonora's entrance aria is the typical Verdi aria and cambaletta. So you have the first, uh, sa- the first slow section. And then he writes a very punishing, fast-paced, what we call cabaletta. So it's at a faster tempo with a lot of fioriture and uh, a lot of high notes. And unfortunately, the broadcast or the, the archive recording cuts off the last 
four minutes of applause for her debut. The longest single set of applause to date for a single aria in the history of the Metropolitan Opera. This is her debut. This is the Cabaletta with just some of the applause. That's history, ladies and gentlemen, and only a fraction of it. Now, I'm sitting in my Chicago apartment. It's what date in 1985? Is it February 1985? I can't remember the exact date. Um, and the Met, at rather short notice, has announced on the public television network that they're going to be uh, broadcasting Verdi's Aida from the stage of the Metropolitan Opera live. And it's announced only at the beginning of the broadcast. The reason they're doing this is that Leontine Price said a few days ago this would be her last performance at the Met. And I think her last performance of opera, if I remember right. Or right, I, I, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's how it was advertised. I think she did sing a little more. A little bit more, but and went, did recitals and orchestra concerts. And that ovation that you just heard pales in comparison to the hysteria that was in the house after she finished singing O Patria Mia. Yeah. She just stood there on the stage this regal woman fighting back the tears. And finally, after about five and a half minutes, five and a half minutes, you see just two lines of moisture come down the sides of her cheeks. She had such composure and such strength as a human being as an, and an artist to first of all know that she was singing her farewell in a stage in which she had sung hundreds of performances in two opera houses, of course, the old Met and the new Met. Um, I will never forget, as long as I live, watching on my little 12-inch color television set in Chicago, that I was witnessing, I didn't get to see the beginning, but I got to see the grand finale. And it is an image that will stay with me for the rest of my life. It was quite special. Was Simon Esses in there with her? Yeah. Yes. It was. As yeah. yeah. So I'd like to, now that we have made this sort of introduction, 
uh, of how African-American singers, and in the most compressed way, with only a couple of examples, do begin to take the stage in core European opera. I want to spend the rest of our time together talking about Porgy and Bess, as advertised. Um, Morris, you were very eloquent uh, the other day when you talked about um, you taking on the role of Porgy and all that that entails for an African-American singer who has made his career up until this point in the core repertoire. You did not go down the Porgy rabbit hole, as it were, and have to climb out. You started with all the famous bass repertoire. And so what finally gave you both the impetus and the, as it were, the moxie, as they used to say, to take on this role? Because also you're a bass, you're not a baritone. Right. <laughs> Did you do that on purpose? No, I didn't. I, just, I haven't been talking in a while and just Loris. So, um, well, the, the, the first obvious reason was La Scala asked me to do it. So you don't tell La Scala no for anything, but maybe once and then they don't call again. So that at least gave me the, uh, the, the, the mindset to take it seriously as a consideration because up until that point, for the first 17 years of my career, I never touched it. I was always told to stay away from it. I had just recently started singing Joe in Showboat with the famous aria Old Man River. And that was a calculated choice as well, but by that time I'd been singing 15 years core repertoire, all German and Italian repertoire for 15 years before I sang my first Old Man River in the show. And so then two years later, I got asked to sing Porgy, and I'm like, why are they asking me to sing Porgy? There's so many guys that sing Porgy. And I named them, you know, like the five or six off the top of my head that would love to do it. It wouldn't have to worry about being in the rabbit hole and have to fight their way out. The more I thought about it, I thought, well, I've earned the right at this point to do it. I've sung at the Metropolitan Opera. I've sung in San Francisco. I've sung everywhere else. I've done all the German and Italian repertoire I could want to do at that point in my career. It's worth it. And if I'm going to do one, doing it at La Scala is probably the justifiable reason to do it. So, I mean, there's also pros and cons because you've never done it before and your first one's going to be at La Scala. Well, that takes a lot of moxie as well. So, um, and then I started studying the character, which is one of the things we try to stay away from. And uh, before I go there, I'll just say that traditionally in the African-American community of opera, classical music singers, if you start off singing Porgy and Bess, you almost impossibly you will never get a chance to sing core repertoire. They see you as that type. And no matter how difficult Serena is, because it's difficult, no matter how difficult Porky is, because it's just as difficult as... as, as any Verdi hero. Any Verdi role, at least. I mean, maybe even Voton. Longer, too. Yeah, maybe Voton. You know, it's that level of singing. Um, but no one seems to respect your technical capabilities because you're singing in broken English. And, uh, and, and even the aptitude of being able to read that score... People take for granted that it's easy music. No, Gershwin's stuff is really, really complicated. It's way harder than Verdi. Verdi wrote in 3-4 four, and 4-4. Four, four. You know, Puccini, Puccini wrote, was more complicated, but Gershwin was even harder than that. I mean, there, there's points in that opera in the first, first half where every measure is a different time signature. So you have to be really, really smart to do it. You, you, you make it sound easy because natural syncopation, rhythm, that type of thing. We can kind of groove with it and make it work, but to put it on paper and read it, it's really difficult. So I digress, but um, what made me finally really just jump off the deep end is I studied the character. And I said, you know, I'm often of the mindset that he's the kick puppy, and you know, everyone feels sorry for him, but he really is the most honorable person in the show. 
Everyone talks about how good he is. Everyone respects him as being the most upstanding person in the show, character-wise. They always say that you're too good for best. She's not good enough for you. Let her have crown. Let them go off and drink and do their thing. You're better than that, Porgy. We love you. We respect you. And ultimately, you know, he proves to be the strongest character in the show, not just mentally with the character, but also he has a little gangster in him, too, because he ends up killing the baddest man in the show for his love. So you feel he... he there's so many emotions involved with Porgy that you have to go through and, and, and embrace that I felt it was my turn to try it, you know? And I thought vocally I could bring something to the role that hadn't been brought before because real basses don't usually tackle this role, so. One of the things that I think this company can be proud of um, is that uh, when we decided to do Porgy and Bess for the first time, I made myself a small promise that none of the singers who would be on the stage principal roles uh, would be appearing, at least with me, either here or in any of the other places that I've worked in Porgy and Bess for the first time working with me, that they would have sung with me or with Cincinnati Opera core repertoire first. Um, and uh, I, did, I did one little sort of reverse trick that you were almost part of it. You had to, uh, had to withdraw for a, a much juicier engagement. Uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, I had the opportunity to program Verdi's Otello for a concert performance at the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra with Russell Thomas, who has been a frequent guest of Cincinnati Opera, African-American tenor, uh, the first genuinely internationally famous African-American tenor to take on the role of Otello, and this was going to be his first performance of the role. So um, Robert Spano, who trusts me, fool, um, said, please put together a cast for Otello. So I did it, and Robert doesn't pay a lot of attention to that. He trusts me, and he figures if he turns up at the first rehearsal and there's someone he doesn't like, I'll fire them. I mean, it's my job, right? So he walked into the room for the first piano rehearsal of Otello. Remember that Otello is the opera and the play in which there is one black character, the Moor, Otello, Othello. And he looked around the room, and every single one of the principals was black. And he looked at me and he said, pardon my French, I have to say what he said. You son of a bitch, you did this on purpose, didn't you? And I said, yes, because it shouldn't matter. And we had incredible performances of it. I say all that as prelude because one of the things I would love for you, Naomi, to talk a little bit about is... Um, the, the complicated nature of Porgy and Bess that it does present for an African-American singer. Morris, you've touched on it. But how, how did Porgy and Bess go from being this sort of quasi-anomaly, is it Broadway, is it opera, to now presented by all the great opera houses in the world? What's the catalyst for it breaking out of its own rabbit hole? I think there are a lot of things that kept Porgy and Bess from making it into sort of a bona fide opera. Gershwin wrote it and it was first performed in 1935 and then tragically Gershwin died unexpectedly at the age of 39 in 1937, two years later, from um, a brain tumor. So he had seen the first performance in the first cast, but it was his first major opera. He'd written a small 20-minute Blue Monday, is um, the name, sort of a, a, a one-act expanded opera, but Porgy and Bess is a full-length opera. And he was still figuring out sort of the pacing and the sort of how to do it. So one of the big issues in performing Porgy was just a, a logistical one. 
what parts do you put in? What parts do you leave out? It's very, if you've seen Porgy and Bess more than once, there's a good chance in different productions, there's a good chance you've seen different productions. Whether you put in the buzzard song, whether you put in the um, orphan's chorus modeled on a real Jenkins orphan chorus. We actually first got to know each other in February. Yes, February of 2018, where, so a year ago, where the University of Michigan's Gershwin Initiative Project actually has done a critical edition of Porgy and Bess, and they had professional singers, student, professional singers in the big roles, Morris was our um, Porgy, and then um, students in the orchestra, in the chorus, and I was in a community chorus that does a lot with African-American spirituals, and we were asked to join the chorus. So I got to, to sing in this, and it is a big piece. This was all the music, everything ever connected with Porgy. Now most likely when the Met is going to use the critical edition as the basis, but they're probably going to do some cuts. And as I said, the reason why you do cuts in Poor Game Best is it was Gershwin at the very beginning of his career trying to figure it out. Had he lived a little longer, he would have given us a final edition. So that's one reason, I think. It was sort of messy that way. Another thing was, well, we know Gershwin and Tim Pan Alley. And, you know, Gershwin, it, this isn't opera. Plus, what is opera, American opera, in the 1930s and even later on in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s? You have a wonderful... Uh, section of the book where you t tackle the word that Gershwin uses to describe the opera. He called it an American folk opera. opera. And you spend a fair amount of energy and intellect on trying to pick apart what that word means. What that phrase means, because American opera isn't obvious at that point. We didn't have a lot of, you know, Puccini died in 26, or 20, excuse me, 24, and then we have, you know, what is opera after that, and then who, what are American composers writing? Gershwin's writing in 35. So just figuring out what is opera, what is American opera, getting our voice on the, and how do you set English? Some people feel that it was really been Benjamin Britten, who finally sort of caught sort of a sense of, oh, this is a good way to make English melodic and lyrical and operatic. But people were doing it before. So there's that issue. And then there's the issue of what is folk. And the folk is a very, it's a, a, a United States American melting pot concept. On one hand, you have folk societies and collecting immigrants from Eastern Europe, people from um, Russia, as Gershwin's parents, he, Ger, George Gershwin was first generation born here in the United States in 1898, but his parents, Rose and um, uh, Morris Gershwitz, uh, came from Lithuania and other parts of um, Eastern Europe to, uh, I think one came from Lithuania, one was from Russia, came to the United States. You've got Polish people, you have Lithuanian, you've got Italians are even considered sort of from sort of um, a Mediterranean other folk sort of group. And there's a whole study in terms of Americanness and whiteness and how people from white people we consider Caucasian and white today sort of become white in an American world. So one issue is um, with Gershwin and his, um, is this, what is folk what is white? What is folk in the black community with um, Du Bois, f forgive me, I, uh, 
It's so weird when you're doing this and you have all this information and trying to get it out really quickly. And I got no information from him ahead of time of what he was going to ask. So I'm just sort of ruffling through the file cabinet here. So you have folk as sort of an Eastern and a European group of people coming. Uh, There's a lot with Germans and the folk. And then you also have African-American folk and the souls of black folk that W.B. Du Bois uh, published in 1903. So folk has a variety of meaning. So for Gershwin to use that term, it was really coded. So nobody really knew the genre of what is Porgy and Bess. What's an American folk opera at that point? In 1985, 50 years after its premiere, the Metropolitan Opera did Porgy and Bess for the first time. And it's not that there were... Houston Grand Opera in 76 was the sort of big opera company that did a Porgy and Bess that began to get it on the map in terms of, oh, this can be an opera. But it was only two 2006 when the Chicago Lyric did uh, Poor Game Best, Cincinnati, you guys first did it in 2012. And so it's becoming sort of more, I think, when we think of opera and Americanness, Poor Game Best is one of the places where we start. Um, uh, Nota bene, the production you will see uh, this summer on the stage of Music Hall in our beautifully renovated Springer Auditorium. Uh, originated, origi- originated at the Washington National Opera, directed by Francesca Zambello, and the Glimmerglass production, the Glimmerglass version of it that we're presenting, is the Washington set made uh, a little more accommodating to other stages. The Washington stage is vast. Um, but equally importantly is that our maestro, David Charles Abel, when he did Porgy and Best for us in 2012, went back to some scholarship that had recently been discovered, which is actually the stage manager's playbook from the Alvin Theater in 1935. And he shows in his playbook where Gershwin and the team made cuts. In other words, the Porgy and Bess you will see on the stage of Music Hall is the Porgy and Bess that Gershwin saw on many nights well into the run when he had already been making changes. To simply amplify uh, on what Naomi said, when Gershwin wrote Porgy and Bess, uh, how many of you know what the word chutzpah means? All right? Et bravado, in the best sense of the word. Well, George was supremely confident of his gifts, and he wrote a monster. I have a piano vocal score in my office. It's as big as Götterdammerung of Wagner, right? So he just put everything in it that he was thinking about for Porgy and Bess. Even before, by the way, the opening night, this score existed before the opera went into rehearsal and before the opera was even orchestrated. And so what happens in 1976 when they, quote, rediscover Porgy and Bess is they want to do all of it. And it's as long as a Wagner opera, basically. So what we do is what Gershwin would have known well into the run. It's a normal opera evening. But we are adding something special because we have Morris singing the role. We're going to add back in the buzzard song. Yay, I didn't know that. (laughs) (laughs) Morris, would you you tell us the importance of, first of all, for those of you who know the opera, of course, Porgy's signature tune is I Got Plenty of Nothing. He also has his wonderful duet, Bess You Is My Woman Now. So those are really famous. So the Bess You Is My Woman Now is this ecstatic Puccinian love duet. I Got Plenty of Nothing, a bit stereotypical, as it were, but the buzzard song is an interesting window into another aspect of Porgy's character and Catfish Row. Would you talk a little bit about the sentiment of the buzzard song and what it means? Well, first of all, I like singing it because it's always cut because people think it's so difficult. 
And it is, but I just love doing it because it's it's that one moment that I get to sing like I'm I'm Votan. You know, I just get to just let it go. But it's out of the. the you are such an opera singer. I, I love I'm it. I'm becoming a soprano in my old age. I think so. <laughs> yeah, I, I want that. You know, I want, I want to be the Fair guy enough. that's known that didn't run away from it. But um, no, I think that the the sentimental value of it is is that it, it, it's introspective and it shows that. Because this, this happens right in the middle of the wedding. We just got married and all that stuff. And everyone's really happy. And all of a sudden, <gasps> a buzzard. Like, and I freak out because that shows you, you, you the, the emotional stereotype. Not the emotional. The, the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The, uh, superstition. Superstitious uh, nature of, of mostly the black community. We, we have this almost voodoo-like quality. Certain things you just don't do. You know, you don't step on the crack, you break someone back. You know, a black cat doesn't cross going to the left, going to the right is good. Uh, the buzzard is, is, is significant of, of evil and something happening. And so that is important to introduce that into the opera because it comes back later uh, when Porgy has to go view Crown's body. I mean, he's totally freaked out because you know, uh, Sporting Life says, you know, the, the person that kills Crown, when he walks into the room, the dead body's eyes begin to bleed. <gasps> oh, no, my Jesus. That's what I say because I'm, that superstitious aspect is very much part of the community then. So I enjoy I mean, it, without that introduction, it kind of comes out of nowhere, mm -hmm. that superstitious aspect. So I think that putting it out there and letting it be known that this buzzard is really freaking us out and, you know, don't, boss, don't say nothing about the buzzard. You know, it's, you, that bird mean tr means trouble, you know. And that is just a foreshadowing of what happens when I'm supposed to go view the body because I can't go look at the body. It's, you know, they're going to, you know, with all them white folks looking at me, I'm going to get killed, you know, so, yeah. I'm really thrilled. If I can just jump in here quickly. Please. The buzzard is in the original novel. Um, so you've got Porgy, the novel from 1925, written by DuBose Hayward, and then his wife primarily turned it into a play in 1927. So those are the two Porgies, and then Porgy and Bess is the opera. The novel, which hooks into sort of a sentimental, little bit of plantation fiction element to it, but it's actually a really beautifully written work, and that has a buzz and there are other superstitious elements. People haven't really looked at the novel and the play and I, uh, and the, as background to the opera. The play, a lot of the words in the play are lifted into the libretto that Ira Gershwin as well as DuBose and Dorothy Haywood helped create. But I'm so glad you like the buzzard song because me as a scholar, I'm like, oh wow, this is a really nice connection with sort of what the novel was. There are many other, or a couple of other superstitious sort of elements or connections with voodoo and the supernatural, with Mariah um, connecting to, you know, giving money to pay someone to help best get better that are usually cut out of the opera. But to have that buzzard, it's an important thing. And, and one last thing is that the supernatural connection to voodoo is a big element in early black opera. Tremonisha is based a lot on that, on who do you believe, you know, education or superstition. And then Harry Lawrence Freeman is an African-American composer and his opera Voodoo is sort of very much connects into it. So it's wonderful that you guys are doing this and it's great because I always feel like, oh, I want the buzzard song, but oh man, poor Porgy, he's singing all night. This is a hard, long song and we, you know, let, let's give him a break. But are we doing one or two verses? Are we doing both of them? <laughs> one verse. Uh, First start. I want to do them both. Well, let's go. All right. Well, the it's, hard your, part of, it's your funeral. It's not my funeral. <laughs> the, the hard part about it is you got to come back and sing Best you is my woman. After that, oh so God. I got to go from being Voton to being 
uh, Don Giovanni playing the 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 uh, the mandolin, the, the mandolin. <laughs> so it's, in an know, American opera, probably a ukulele, but a ukulele, it's okay. Wow. <laughs> but yeah, that's uh, that's the challenging aspect of it. But I'm I'm for it. I'm looking forward to doing oh, it. Oh, so. that's really a great thing. Out. You get the buzzard song. So before we uh, have a, a couple of closing remarks, um, I realize that one of the beautiful things about having an iPhone is that I I rarely throw anything away on my iTunes. So I'd like to play you uh, one little bit of history, uh, which is this famous, recently rediscovered recording of Leontine Price and William Moorfield singing Porgy and Bess in Berlin at the Titania Palast, which is the, was the concert hall in Berlin after Berlin was bombed to bits, of course, at the end of the war, and it served as the concert hall and opera house until uh, the Berlin Opera was rebuilt. Um, I think this is the I Wants to Stay Here uh, excerpt from the duet, and this is caught live. Uh, the conductor is Alexander Smolens, who was the conductor at the premiere in 1935, and it should be Leontine Price and William Moorfield. So where we find ourselves today 
is uh, in the second decade of the 21st century, and we have an explosion of great young African-American singers on the stages all over the world singing all repertoire from the earliest Baroque opera to the newest of the new operas. We've got one this summer, of course, called Blind Injustice, which is a world premiere in which it, the cast is, of course, primarily African-American, all exciting young singers who are going to be lighting up the major stages in the next few years. But I'd love for both of you, both as a performer and as a scholar and opera fan, to spend a moment as we conclude this evening reflecting on how it is today that this explosion has finally happened, that there are so many wonderful young African-American singers, the new royalty of opera on the stage. Morris? I, I think that it's attributed to people like yourself, companies like this one, giving us a chance. You know, um, there weren't any black quarterbacks in the NFL until you gave them a chance, you know. And, you know, I tell the young singers all the time because they look and say, you know, we don't see many of you. Well, I know all the ones of us that do it, you know, and we're doing it. And we are, I think the most important aspect of it is making sure that the quality that you bring to the table is first class. Because then, <clears throat> it, it should always be about the talent and the voice. And you can't take an opportunity and not, <laughs> preparation begets opportunity. You know, we just needed a chance to prove ourselves. And every last person I know that's having a career has been knocking the ball out the park. Mm -hmm. And we're appreciative of it. You know, I love what I do. I love the opera. I love music. I love making music. I'm sitting there listening to I Love You Porgy from 1956, and I'm bouncing my head because I'm so excited. I want to go sing it right now because I love the music. I love the communication. I love the story. And I'm, I love the opportunity to get up and express myself musically. And I can earn a living at it. You know, and, this, and I, I just think that the talent was always there, but the opportunities weren't. And now we're getting the opportunities, and everyone's knocking it out the park. I'm very proud of all of us. Naomi, uh, is there... What's next? What needs yet to be done in the world of, uh, of creating, of nurturing talent in order to, as I've heard so often, I will come and see your opera production when I see more people who look like me on the stage. Oh, wow. That's great that people are actually saying this out loud. I think a lot of it, there are a bunch of different things. One thing is that opera companies and Cincinnati, I'm just getting to know you guys, but you are doing so many things right you're realizing that opera isn't an old museum piece just for the past, but that there are wonderful things in the repertory, and oh my, I'd be so sad to see those operas go. We need the canon there. But opera, in order for it to be relevant and mean something today, it has to live and breathe today. And so a lot of that is helping the audience become more inclusive of what the rest of the United States looks like. We're in a, a world now where, yes, we have really awful divisions socioeconomically, and yet there's a wide group of people, the majority of people, want to be able to have this American dream and to be able to be, go to the arts and to have some sort of connection. We want our children to have this. We want to know sort of what does it mean now that I'm making some money, how do I go to museums? How do I do this cultural element? I'm not always getting it in my schools, although 
thank God that there's still some schools who are doing it. So the opera companies have are realizing we can't just expect people to come in. You guys are doing amazing things with outreach. I mean, I went to opera goes to church, and I am a, I'm converted. <laughs> oh my goodness. And you don't just do, you didn't just start this. This has been going on for nearly 14 years. And you do several of these um, a season. And this is incredible that you're going into, I think it was, and I can't remember the exact name, but Adam's, Alan's Temple, Allen Temple. Temple AME Church. That was incredible. And it was this in, very interracial, diverse audience. So I think getting the audience is a big thing and letting people, not just assuming people are coming in, and then getting the audience and having people who are saying, oh, okay, this I'm learning about this. So here are the great, you know, here's Fidelio and here's Trovatore. But where are the stories that have something to do with today. Where's the opera growing and breathing? Issues around incarceration, though we certainly have them, not below the surface in Porgy and Bess, where jail and being locked up, whether it's you know permanently or for a short time, is very much a part of the opera. But then to take these stories of when incarceration goes wrong, when the justice systems goes wrong with this blind injustice, this is incredible that you're saying this is a story that gets to be told and elevated in opera. I think one of the things that is also important is that not only the recreators, but the creators of opera, the diversity that we can achieve by encouraging African-American female creators, Latina creators, Asian creators to do, to make new opera, to create the future for us. And I don't want to blow his cover because he's a very modest young man, but there's a very gifted uh, gentleman sitting at the back of the room tonight who is going to be the author of a brand new opera for the summer of 2020. No, it's not Madame Butterfly, it's William Menefield. William, stand up, please. Oh, wow, wow, wow. William is writing for us, along with the incredible librettist and, and author, uh, Sheila Williams, a an opera that we're now calling Fierce. It is the story of young women finding their identity. It is a collaboration with two organizations here in Cincinnati, the Music Resource Center and Wordplay. And what Sheila did, along with William's help, is hear the stories of these young black women growing up and how difficult it is to grow up and find your own identity. And that opera will be on the stage next summer as part of CO Next Diverse Voices. I want to thank our, our guests here tonight for uh, being part of this discussion, which is only scratching the surface of a very important topic, which is where does this art form go to be genuine? I think one of the things that we talk about a lot in our art form are, are we relevant? And I want to replace that word relevant with the word genuine. And I think one of the things that is so valuable about the kind of work that William is doing for us and uh, Scott Richards is doing for us this summer and on into the future is that they seek stories that are not just ripped from the headlines, but are part of our consciousness as humans and part of some of the things that are wrong with our society, some of the things that we can also try and fix in our society and shine a spotlight on it through this medium of opera. Because if we spin back to the reason that opera was created, its history goes back to the ancient Greek theater festivals. Two comedies and a tragedy, all in one day. 
Now, they weren't just for the entertainment of the masses, although any citizen could come. Even slaves were allowed to go to the opera or the theater festivals in ancient Greece. But they were actually cryptograms for becoming better citizens. Because what did these comedies and tragedies do? They may have been gods and goddesses, but they were showing all of the foibles that even afflict the immortals on a very human scale. So for me, one of the things that we are trying to do so hard is as we look ahead with greater inclusion in the topics that we choose, in the operas that we create, in the operas that we present, in the people that we engage to tell these stories, is to recognize the increasingly diverse world in which we live. It's a start. That's what we can do. It's a journey that this company has been on for over 25 years, thanks to the pioneering work of our, our general director, Patty Beggs, and her partner in all things um, public, Tracy, who is back there with us tonight. Tracy Wilson, thank you very much. But I think we're trying to do something which is the most valuable thing, which is to be responsive to the world in which we live, and continue to strive by the work that we do to reflect that world and be modern-day ancient Greeks in trying to hold a light up to our joys, our sorrows, our triumphs, our foibles, and all the things we have yet to do well. Thank you all very much for coming tonight, and I hope to see you at so many of our performances this summer and to hear this amazing man grace our stage once again. Thanks for listening. For more information about Cincinnati Opera, please go to cincinnatiopera.org. And please do subscribe to this podcast. For Cincinnati Opera, I'm Evans Mirages.